Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. We'll read to verse 19 this morning. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the day that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and, sh and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Let's pray before we get into the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your precious word and we thank you that we can look at it, learn about you and learn about ourselves as well and what you would have us to do. This morning we pray that your spirit once again would be our teacher and our guide for he is the author of your word and we pray that uh, you would use me for that purpose, Lord, that you would hide me behind your cross but that Jesus would be lifted up in our sight. We thank you once again for this time. We pray that it be a glory and an honour to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we spoke about, we spent some time comparing the days of Noah with the days of the end. And uh, we, we looked at the, the similarities and, and uh, we noticed that a lot of those similarities in Noah's days actually were already in our days. And two weeks ago, though, we looked at this portion of Scripture here and we went through this already and we saw that the, the, the blowing or the, the sounding of the final trumpet, which is the seventh trumpet, meant that the, the, the kingdoms of this world were now the kingdoms of Christ. You see, that's, that's the game plan here. That's the, this is the purpose of this whole thing, is that Christ will one day return to the earth. By this stage, Satan's already been kicked out of heaven and God is about to reclaim the earth for himself. You see, for long enough, the devil has been the God of this world and too many people have followed him. But Jesus promises to return. As he came once as a lamb, he will return once again as a lion, as the lion of Judah. And he will come and smite the, um, uh, the evil in this world and he will take up rulership. He will become the ruler literally in this world and that's going to be a fantastic time so we have that to look forward to and this particular passage here says that at this time that the seventh trumpet blowing meant that that was about to occur or was occurring but one thing we didn't look at was the very last verse in this in this passage that's verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. I specifically did not go into this verse last time because I've got a whole sermon on this verse. Okay. Today is going to be a bit of toing and froing with scripture because I want you to get an idea of how things are sort of planned out in the book of Revelation and it's going to be a little bit heavy I'm not going to be too heavy for you and I hope the fumes aren't going to knock you out before the end of the sermon but I'm sure they won't I'm sure you'll get a blessing from it as well now 
Has anyone ever heard the expression, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake? Do you remember reading that previously? Because if you'd been here through the whole series so far, you would have noticed it's repeated, and it'll be repeated again. It happens about four times in Scripture, sorry, three main times, and then one time at the beginning without the mention of, of uh, the earthquake. But turn back with me now to chapter 4 in Revelation as we, we see the first instance that this phrase or this, uh, this, yeah, this grouping of words comes together. Now, just to, before we read that passage, just briefly, from chapters 1 to 3, Jesus is giving an address directly to the, the seven churches in Asia. Do you remember all that? And he speaks to the church in Laodicea, he speaks to the church in Pergamon and Thyatira. And then straight into chapter 4, John then gets an invitation. John gets an invitation to go up to heaven. Right? And let's, let's read that. And let's, this is where John begins to have his visions of, of heaven and the future. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. That's the invitation John gets to go up to heaven. He went into heaven through a door. Okay? And he heard the voice saying, Come up. He saw the door opened. The voice said, come up, I'm going to show you things which are about to take place. Verse 2, and then he says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the thrones, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now that John gives us a wonderful picture of what heaven what what God's throne is like and he likens it to the jewels um, that's the best he can he can come up with and the colours and the rainbow that's around the, the throne and, and then he uh, after this picture of beauty that he gives us he then says that from the throne emanates lightnings and thunders mm, beautiful but almost scary there is immense power coming from the throne and there were voices coming from there as well. But there's something missing here, isn't there? There's something missing in this particular passage to the one we read in Revelation chapter 11. What, what is it? There's no earthquake. There's no earthquake. Now, once again, consider where John is. John has gone through a door into heaven. Why isn't there an earthquake? Well, the definition of an earthquake is that it has to be where? On the earth. <laughs> okay, it's not a heaven quake, it's an earthquake. So there's no earthquake up there in heaven, but the point is that there's, there's tremendous power, tremendous authority coming from God's throne. And there's no hail up there either, no hail in heaven. So the point that John wants to give us here is a picture of God's throne and it's the, from the perspective of heaven. 
not on the earth. Have you ever watched a lightning storm at night? Have you ever been in the middle of a lightning storm? And sometimes you may even have your curtains drawn and you see... And you'll see the light actually come through the through the. It's a scary thing, isn't it? When you when, when lightning strikes very close. But then, what are you waiting for? Yeah, the thunder, right? And sometimes the thunder is more scary than the than the lightning. The lightning can do can do the most harm, but the thunder is a thing that shakes you on the inside and shakes and shakes the house. So John is telling us this is the feeling that he had before God's throne. It's it's a, a scary feeling it was absolutely beautiful but to be in the middle of it to be that close to it was almost scary it was scary and john is saying that there is so much power and authority emanating from god's throne that you don't want to mess with him that he is the one who is in control there is no one who is even close to his his power his justice and his strength and the, the scary thing is for the world is that this power is emanating from heaven and it's about to unleash on the earth. The other interesting point in this particular verse that we read, uh, verse 19 of chapter 11, is it mentions that the temple of God in heaven was opened. Temple of God in heaven was open, and there was seen in the temple the Ark of the Testament. That's strange, isn't it? The Ark is an earthly box that was made, and and you wonder well, how does it how does it fit together? Why? By the seventh trumpet, this is notice we've gone through seven trumpets, and we went through what before that? Seven what? Seals. So there were seven seals. And seven trumpets. And by the seventh trumpet, the heaven is opened. Not because John's in heaven, but it's seen from the earth. Because he says, and it was seen, and there was seen. So this is almost a picture that people are able to get on the earth about what's happening in heaven. And by the seventh trumpet, from the viewpoint of the earth and its inhabitants, the temple of God is opened and they see the ark of the testament in it. Now we'll talk about the ark a little bit later on. Okay, I want to I want to pay specific attention to that later on. But I want to ask you this morning, I want you to, to think about why would God's temple be opened? Why is God's temple open, not closed in heaven? Well, do you remember what Christ did when he died on the cross? When Christ died on the cross, the curtain or the veil that was, that was in front of the Holy of Holies, where no man could enter, was torn from top to bottom and the temple on the earth was opened. Okay, Which meant that man now had, symbolically, right on, on, on the earth, which meant in heaven as well, that man could do what we did this morning which means we can approach God's throne directly. We don't need you and I have the privilege of being able to come before God's throne ourselves. We don't need a spokesperson to do it for us. We don't need a high priest or a priest to go in front of God and say, this is our request on behalf of Frank because he is somehow more worthy to stand before the throne. 
The Bible says that that veil was torn from top to bottom. The sacrifice had been made for all time and our high priest was now who? Jesus. Jesus became our high priest and he becomes my, for want of a better word, ticket or, or, or opportunity to go before God's throne because he now washes me in his blood and makes me worthy to go in and stand before God himself and make requests. So Jesus opened the temple in, in earth and in heaven. Okay, But there's something a little bit different with this thing over here. There are two, there are two reasons a door can be left open. One is that someone has gone in. Correct? The other is that someone has just left. And if you look at it in context of this particular passage, okay, uh, it becomes clear that someone has just left the building and is on his way down to the earth. My, my point on this is that I believe, and once again, this is, this is my interpretation, this is what I read, is that from the passage that Christ has left his throne and is about to come to the earth to execute judgment on it. Turn with me to chapter 6. We'll look at the sixth seal here. You're going to do a bit of revision. Chapter 6, in, starting from verse 12 to verse 17. Now, this is the sixth seal, okay? Keep this in mind. This was a little while ago, um, back in chapter 6. We're now at the chapter 11 in Revelation. Chapter 6, which is the sixth seal, said, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, hang on a sec. Why is everyone scattering and running to hide back in chapter 6? We're in chapter 11 and it's saying that now that, that, that this is about to happen, but back in chapter 6, on the sixth seal, it says literally every person on the earth is running to hide from the face of the one who is in heaven and who is about to unleash judgment on the earth. They say the great day of his wrath has come. Now who's saying it? Every person on the earth. So they see him at this particular point. People are scattering and running and trying to hide themselves and almost are happy to be 
buried by the rocks to be buried alive because they are afraid of what they're seeing up in heaven and what's about to be unleashed on them. Now, notice the elements in chapter 6. There's earthquakes. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes as blood. The stars fall from heaven. The heavens are rolled up, which is an amazing verse in itself. The heavens are rolled up like a scroll. And every mountain and island is moved. And the people try to hide from the face of the Lamb because the day of his wrath has come. How does that match with chapter 11? Well, I believe that these things are literally talking about the same thing here. Okay? Now, let me see if I can explain this to you properly. In chapter 6, it gives us, uh, the sixth seal gives a panoramic view, I believe, of the time of Jacob's trouble, the last three and a half years. Remember how it's this seven years are split up into two three and a half year blocks. The first three and a half year block is basically tells us about the ascendancy or the ascending of the Antichrist in this world and how the, the devil is able to enter into a, man, into a man and that man is able to with also the help of the false prophet they're able to rise up in power and we see that with the, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse he rises up in power. He's able to, to make some fantastic deals. Okay? But then what it says at the three and a half year point, um, it all goes very bad. He sits in the temple, sets, him, sets his own image up in the temple and declares himself to be God. At which point, there is all-out war, basically. Israel rejects who he is and from that three and a half year point in the middle, he persecutes the Jews. There's no sign of him persecuting the Jews before that. And if you look at Daniel and the Old Testament prophecies, it only refers to the last three and a half years when Israel will really suffer tribulation. So, but if you look at the six, seven seals, sorry, it's the first four of them seem to talk about the Antichrist and what he's doing and his rise to power. The sixth seal then talks about all these judgments, earthquakes, sun becoming black, moon turning to blood, stars falling from heaven, heavens rolling up. And then finally it mentions that the, the islands are moved, are moved out of their place, the mountains are moved and the, the people run, are running away from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, a lot of those elements we've read about already. Do you remember? Do you remember the sermons about the sea turning to, to blood? Do you remember the, where the, the moon gets darkened and the sun, the sun gets darkened? Well, that's already starting to happen and it's already happening in the seven trumpets. We haven't reached the seven vials yet because if we reach the seven vials, the seven vials will tell us the conclusion of all those things. So what I believe the sixth seal is all about is a panoramic view of what's the basic elements that are going to happen on the three, last three and a half years. Okay? They're all God's, God starts pouring out his judgment after 
the Antichrist sets himself up as God. And that's when God starts judging the world. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, it says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and, that, and thou shouldest give thy reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Well, in Revelation 11, 18, it's the final trumpet. And it coincides with the sixth seal, the end of the sixth seal, when Christ will return. Now, keep this in mind. How many, how, many, how many days did it take God to create the world? Yes. I thought I'd trapped someone there. It was six days, not seven. Okay. What did God do on the last day? He rested. Okay. Now, I, I think okay, that God doesn't spend the whole seventh uh, seal uh, in war. I believe that the beginning of the seventh seal, the beginning of the seventh trumpet, the beginning of the seventh is that's it game over it's a bit like what god started at the beginning how he created the world he was cre he's creating it new again okay let's read a little bit more let's go for a bit of a sneak preview turn forward to chapter 16 revelation chapter 16 we're going to look at the last bowl of god's judgment on the earth Revelation 16, 17 says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. Now, this is the last group of three. Seven seals, seven trumpets. These are the seven vials. So this is the very last thing, very last sequence, item in the sequence, last sequence. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such as not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found Remember, in that somewhere else before, and there were fell, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone and but the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Uh, if there were plagues, if there were hails that big, where would you, what would you be doing? You'd be running to hide, and you'd be hiding. Guess where? Under rocks, <laughs> because you'd need some heavy-duty protection from those things. So hang on a sec. The seventh vial is now saying it's done. The seventh vial is telling us that's when the judgment is coming. But that was, this is chapter 16, and we, are, we heard in chapter 11 that it was done. And the sixth seal, men were running away from, from the wrath of the Lamb which was on his throne. So, okay. Six seals, okay. Or seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials. Do you understand? They all end up in the same place, the final judgment when Christ returns. 
In fact, you know that the, the term, there were voices and thunders and lightnings and all that sort of stuff, always happens at the last seal, the last trumpet, the last vial. And it's almost a marker for us to say, this is the game that's going to happen. This is the last thing that's going to happen. This is your indicator. Okay? Now, let me just give you a word of warning. I am... Uh, I don't know that there are too many who would agree with me. A lot of, a lot of theologians believe that, that these seven things all happen one after the other. So the first things, seven things happen, then when they're finished, the seventh, second seven things happen, when they're finished, the, the third seven, seven things happen. I don't see that. I'm happy to be proven wrong. I see that there is a, a, a link between the end of each of those. Some would agree with me, many would not. Okay, so I'm giving you my, my perspective on what I'm reading, but I had to give you my perspective because if I gave you someone else's perspective, I wouldn't be telling you what I believe. Okay, just to let you know. Go back to chapter 8, verse 1. The last seal, the last seal of those, the first seven, It only tells us one thing. Look at, look at Revelation 8, 1. It says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Go down to verse 5. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Why would there be... Question. Why would there be... If this is the seventh seal... Why is there half an hour of silence in heaven? I think it's interesting, don't you? I mean, by all intents and purposes, whenever you read something in heaven, there's plenty of stuff going on. And there's always something being said. It's a very talkative sort of place and worshipful place. You've got the elders worshipping God and, and, and calling him that thou art, you know, God Almighty, and they're, and they're praising God. You've got the angels doing that. You've got a lot of stuff happening all the time. But then all of a sudden, you get in the seventh seal, you get silence in heaven for half an hour, which is an amazing thing. Silence in heaven, there is the praise stops. And I, I haven't heard anyone actually give an explanation really for that half an hour. I can imagine if that's, the, if that's when Jesus gets up from his throne and is about to come down to earth, in full armour, they'd be quiet. That's the picture I get from this thing. Every time you hit the last thing, it's, that's it. It's all over. So the term voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake is used with reference to the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet and the seventh vial and the sense it becomes a marker for us at the judgment from God's throne. His awesome power has caused this to occur. So, basically, what I'm saying to you is that they all end, the seventh seals, 
the seven trumpets, the seven vials, end always at the same place. Each one is a greater explanation of the, of the, the previous one. It gives you more detail, but intensifies always towards the end, and they always end up in the same place. There is some, what some would call, recapitulation in terms of it goes back, but it only goes back from the sixth seal onwards. It doesn't go back to the first horseman, the second horseman, all that sort of stuff. That's talking primarily about the Antichrist on the earth. After the three and a half years, that's when God's judgment starts to fall. That's the sixth, beginning of the sixth seal. And then from that point, you start getting this dramatic increase in God's judgment. In fact, when we look at the seven vials, you'll see that when we look, everything we looked at in the seven trumpets about the... You remember the third of the, of the oceans are turned to blood? A third of the fish die and all that sort of stuff? Well, when you look at... When you look at the seven vials at the end, you'll see the whole ocean is now dead. All the, the, the sun has turned completely black. The moon has turned to blood. You see the, the, the it's like a culmination all going to, to one particular point. Okay? It's an interesting point about what day, what seal it is to. Which seal have I told you that, that God's judgment falls on the earth? It's seal number six. What day was man created? On the sixth day. So God, in a sense, this judgment, the sixth seal, is a judgment on man. Okay, And, and on man, because he has decided to follow the, the, the devil from the beginning. He's given in to him, and he has followed him all the way through. And this is God's judgment on the sixth day. Okay? But while God is judging the Gentiles of this world in the last three and a half years, he's doing something else at the same time. He's redeeming his people, the Jews, back again to him. Those last three and a half years, the Jewish people, the Bible says, are going to be um, uh, chased by the devil and by the Antichrist. But God is going to protect them specifically for three and a half years. We're going to look at that in chapter 12 when God actually provides a place for them, the Bible says, in the wilderness where they are fed, where they are looked after, when they are, where they are protected from the Antichrist and from the devil until God returns. Now, let's look at the, let's look at the ark for the, uh, for the moment. During the days, for those of you who aren't familiar with the ark, the ark was built uh, start of the Exodus. Okay, God gave the, the laws to, to Moses. God gave a, a, a staff to Aaron that budded, and then there was a, a particular story associated with that. God provided His people with manna. Okay, those three items are placed in the ark. The ark is literally a box. Okay that is overlaid with gold and it has two staffs on each side where the priest could actually carry it. Okay? It is, and inside the ark are those things. And we'll talk a little bit more about, about what those things are there for. But on top of the ark, most of you have seen Rays of a Lost Ark, have you? There, is, there are two angels and they are looking toward each other. Okay? And they're, they're, their wings are overspread and God... When they, when they make, God instructed them to, to make that ark, he said that his presence would be on that ark. That lid, he said, would become his seat. 
and he would literally sit there and converse with Moses and with, and with Aaron. He would talk to them. They could talk to him. And on that seat, once a year, the priest would kill a lamb and would pour the blood on that seat. They overlaid gold seat. And I'll tell you a bit more about that in a second. Okay, so in the Old Testament, though, the Jews had their tabernacle when they were moving around from place to place, when they didn't have a, a temple. And then when they finally had a temple, um, sorry, they, when they had the tabernacle and when they had a temple, the ark was placed in the, the central position, the holy place, the holiest place. Okay, and in that ark, that was a sign to them of God's presence to them. Now, in the, in the tribulation period, we know that the Antichrist will allow the Jews to do what? To rebuild the temple again. Is there any mention of an ark? No. Because the ark is lost. No one knows where the ark is today. No one has any clue about where the ark is. Oh, there's plenty of, plenty of ideas and stuff like that. But no one has seen the ark. So they build the temple without that ark in it anymore. Now, there are five names for the ark in Scripture. Five different names. You know, Jesus has many names. He's about 200 of them. The ark has five names. We're going to go through those five names now. And it's going to tell us a bit about what the ark is there for. Turn to Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. Actually, go back to 21. Exodus chapter 25, verse 21 says, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony. Of all things which I will give thee, in commandment unto the children of Israel. What does it call the ark there? It's called the ark of the testimony. Okay? Now, inside the ark, remember I said to you, <coughs> there were some items inside the ark. They were the, the Ten Commandments. They were Aaron's uh, rod and manna. Okay. Guess what? Each of those things were a testament were testifying to the rebellion of Israel at each point. You see, the law, Israel had broken already. The staff, Israel had rebelled against the authority God had, had provided and the men that God had provided to lead Israel. They had rebelled against them. And the manna, what did Israel do when, when God provided them food from the sky? They whinged again. So at every point, the test, what's testifying in that ark is the sinfulness of mankind. So when the angels look in that ark, when those two angels that are looking towards each other look in that ark, they, can, they, they can't help but see the sin 
that was there, the sin that was, that was, um, that was prevalent. Okay? Which brings us to the next name of the ark. Turn to Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. Numbers 10, verse 33. And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant. Okay, you got that in your Bible? Of the Lord went before them in them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. This is called the ark of the covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is basically an agreement, a pact, a, a, a pledge between two parties. About something, the closest thing we probably have to a uh, to a covenant is something like marriage, where a pledge is made, a promise is made, a commitment is made, rings are exchanged, which are a sign of that covenant, that promise. Now, what promise does the does the ark speak about? What covenant is there? Well, when you you have your Bibles in front of you, it's split up into two parts. What are those two parts? Old and New Testament. Okay? Another way of saying Old and New Covenant. The covenant, the main covenant in the Old Testament was the covenant that God made with man or through, um, through Moses about the law. Okay? There are other, other agreements that God made with Abraham and with, uh, with David as well. But basically, the covenant this, this ark testified to was the agreement that God made with man that he would provide man his laws that man would follow those laws. If he followed those laws, man had life. If he didn't follow those laws, there was death. Okay, That was the agreement. But there was something else in that agreement. In that, God made the top of that ark to be a mercy seat. Well, mercy doesn't speak of judgment, does it? Mercy speaks of letting, uh, letting the judgment pass. So the blood that they would scatter on that mercy seat would be payment to God, would be payment for the sins of the people and God would overlook those sins for a year at a time. Okay? And that was, that was done by the high priest uh, in those days. The blood of an innocent uh, lamb was shed upon the mercy seat and as God looked upon the mercy seat, he saw that blood, that blood covered the sin. It didn't take it away. It didn't, it didn't uh, remove the sin. It covered it so the sin couldn't be seen. And God allowed the judgment to pass. Do you remember when Israel was being saved from Egypt, what God asked them to do? He asked them to put blood of a lamb upon the doorposts of their home. And that was a sign when the, the last plague the 10th plague was the angel of death going through Egypt, killing the firstborn. The sign was to the angel of death that when he saw the blood on that door, that he was to pass by that house. He wasn't to go in. And in that way, the, the children of Israel were spared from the slaughter, but the children of the Egyptians weren't. That's how Pharaoh lost his own first son. Okay? So that once again becomes a picture. And this ark again is a picture of the blood covering the sin. Now that is 
A picture of who? Of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross for us. And we'll talk a bit about that in a second. So that's the second one. The covenant that God made with man then was, yes, I've got laws that you need to follow. And if you, if you follow them, you will have life. And if you don't, you will have death. You will reap the consequences of that. And the testimony in the ark is that you are all sinners. But there is a provision I've made for you that will give you mercy. That's the covenant that God made with man. Now, let's go to the next one. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 3 says, And here the Lamb of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. The next name that the ark is given is called the ark of God. God's presence was with the ark. God sat on the throne on the ark. His presence was was there and the ark was an indication of his presence okay I'll, I'll leave that one at that turn to psalm chapter psalm 132 verse 8 psalm 132 verse 8 Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. The ark of thy strength is the, is the next name it's given. And do you, do you know what Israel did when they were going into battle with the ark? They'd bring it with them. <laughs> They'd bring it with them because the ark was not only God's presence, it was God's power. And through the power of God, not the ark itself, but the power of God's presence with the ark gave them victory over their enemies. In fact, we read, a, we read a passage, I think it was a while ago, when the Philistines managed to get a hold of the ark and they brought it to their own temple, to their own god. Uh, I'm not sure you pronounce his name. It's D-A-G-O-N, Dagon or Dagon. Um, and they put it before their god. As a, uh, as a token of their, of their service to him. And the next morning they came in and Dagon had fallen flat on his face. God's presence and power was with the ark and it's indeed, it was a sign of God's strength. So God was seated on his throne. So we have the ark of... Uh, sorry, the ark of the... Uh, what was it? The ark of the testimony... The Ark of the Covenant. We had the, the Ark of God and the Ark of His Strength. And finally, 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 3.
Second Chronicles chapter 35, verse 3. And said unto the Levites that taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. It shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and his people Israel. The ark, the holy ark, speaks of the holiness of God, speaks of the separation that God has from sin. You see, holiness is, is separateness. Holiness has to do with uniqueness. It has to do with purity. And is God is holy, has nothing to do with sin. And that's why God wants us to be pure and holy as he is. Now, those five descriptions are given of the ark. There are five roughly different names that the ark has, which speaks about its purpose on the earth. And to the Jews, the significance it had to them. But the ark, if you can imagine, if the Jews are able to see... The temple of heaven opened and, and he, who, uh, he who is about to come down and, and rescue them, they see the ark of God sitting in the temple in heaven. What does that tell them? It tells them that the one who is identified with that thing of their past. See, that's the most, the ark of the covenant is the most, the holiest, most identifiable Jewish religious item there is. It's the most recognisable one too. The Jews immediately would recognise that thing as, ah, that's our ark. And it's sitting in a temple up there and he who is about to come down to the earth is about to save us. Because he identified himself, he identified himself with that ark. Now, Jesus would return, or Jesus' return would herald the Jews long desire throughout the ages that their Messiah would come and rescue them once and for all. That they would no longer be under the bondage of the heathen, of the, uh, of the Gentiles. He was about to save them. They knew now who his name was. That it would be Jesus. See, they've rejected him now, haven't they? But there's going to come a time when they will accept him as their saviour and they will look forward to him coming back. Turn to one last passage, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, as we see what God will do in the last day. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, one of the last books of the Old Testament. Now listen carefully. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bidness for him as one that is in bidness for his firstborn. They'll realise who is coming to rescue them and they will weep 
because they had rejected the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They had rejected him the first time. They will see the marks on his hands and his feet. They will know who the Messiah is and they will weep and mourn. As It's, it's, it's an incredible verse, this one here. Because if you look at it, God is speaking, right? And he says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. And then it says, and they shall look upon me. Well, hang on. They're going to look upon God and they're going to start weeping. And then it says, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. God will one day come and restore the Jews back into fellowship, back, regrafted back into the vine, which is Jesus Christ. And that's going to be a glorious day. And we look in chapter 12, as we look at chapter 12 next week in Revelation, we see the glorification of Israel. We see the woman in resplendent glory up in heaven. And we're going to look at that next week because Israel has been redeemed and Israel will finally be with her Lord and Saviour. They will worship God. They will be saved and we will be united with them. Okay, what's our challenge today? Well, think about the ark. The ark proved that the Israelites were sinners because the testament was inside the ark that they broke God's commandments and God's authority and God's provision every time. They rebelled against God's provision. They rebelled against his authority and they broke his laws. Well, guess what, people? We've done exactly the same our whole lives. Every person in this world has broken God's laws, has rebelled against his authority on the, over their lives and hasn't cared about the provision that he's given them. The Bible says that God is merciful and provides for the good and the evil. He causes it to rain on, on everyone. He provides the most evil person with the food that he needs, the air to breathe, the very life that that, that person has. God provides that. God is a merciful God and he's a patient God because he wants people to accept the new covenant. And the new covenant is that God does not require us to kill bulls and goats and lambs and shed blood and all that sort of stuff. God has shed the blood of his only son for our sake. And that blood doesn't just last one year and has to be repeated over and over again. When Jesus said it is done on the cross, it was done once and for all one time for every one of us now the bible says by faith in what jesus did and who he is a man is justified before god that blood cleanses us from every sin and stain once for all time we then get adopted into god's family once you put your faith in jesus christ and you you will have the ability to follow God's laws because they are built inside you. It, is a, it becomes then a desire to fulfill those laws. They become natural to you because we learn to love as God loved us. And in love, all the laws are fulfilled. Did you notice that? The two greatest commandments that God gives us is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love each other. Right? And to love your neighbour as yourself. 
You can't do that unless you understand how much God loves you in the first place and have accepted that love. It's only when you've accepted that love in your heart, then that love can then overflow to other people's hearts. God has provided a new agreement, a new way, and we are fortunate as Gentiles to be now brought in. You see, Israel was disobedient. And God allowed their disobedience to be an opportunity to save, to bring in the Gentile nations as well. God knew they were going to rebel and not accept the Saviour. He knew it from the beginning. But it was his provision for us. God is still on his throne. God is the ruler of this universe. There is nothing, there is nothing that anyone can do to take that away from him. That's our foundation. You know, there may be plenty of things that come against you as a Christian. And the Bible says that we are battered from all sides. Huh? Sometimes we feel totally barraged by, by evil and by people who are trying to bring us down, who are mocking, who are, who are whatever. But God is sitting on this throne. God is in control. And that's what we can rely on. And if you're a child of God and you know that in your heart, you have nothing to fear because... Death can't take that away from you. There is nothing you have that the, the ruler of this universe can't protect and give. The fourth thing was that it was the ark of his strength. God is strong. Do we doubt his strength? Sometimes we look at our own lives and we say, what a failure and miserable person I am. I can't do anything. You know something? Half the time our problem is we don't trust in God's strength. We doubt when we pray. We don't believe. We, have, we lack the faith when we pray to actually believe that he's strong enough to do what he says he can do. God can do not only what we ask him to do, the Bible says he can do more, much more than we can ever think or imagine. God can save us to the utmost. And finally, God is holy. The reason God wants you to be saved, the reason is that he wants you to be holy. When you are saved, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God then starts a work in your life to make you and me holy. Don't ever think that God doesn't want you to be holy. Don't think that God is happy to leave you when he saved you to leave you where you are. God wants his children to grow. God doesn't want children that, that, are, that don't grow, that stay babies their whole lives. How would, you, would you be happy as a parent if you had a baby and that baby stayed a baby its whole life? It's a lot of diapers in a lifetime. God doesn't, God doesn't save people to leave them as they are. God saves them to adopt them and change them on the inside, to conform them to the image of his son so that they are able to be witnesses in this world and other people are able to be saved and his name is ultimately glorified by what we do, what we say, what we think, how we live our lives. God wants us to grow in grace and in power because he is our source of everything. Nothing else you need. God. If you have God, you have everything you need. If you haven't given your life to him this morning, don't wait another second. Give it to him now. Now. Now's a good time, isn't it? 
That's a good, better time than anything else. You know? If you're not sure if you're going to heaven today, if you're not sure if you died, if you're hit by a car or if you have a heart attack or a stroke or any other uh, multitudes of things, if you're not sure that if you would have died today you would, go, you would go to heaven, you know something? Before we finish today, I'd be making very sure that I'd be going to heaven because God guarantees it. God says if you repent of your sin and you believe in what Jesus did for you and you believe that he rose on the third day, which means he proved who he said who he was, that he's a son of God, you accept him as your Lord and Saviour, you will be saved. No ifs, ands or buts, nothing else to do, no works to perform. We are the, would be the biggest fools in the world if you, if you didn't accept that, if you tried to work your own way to heaven. Why would you? But yet we do. Because we think we know better, our pride gets in the way, we have to do it our way. I can't accept God's way because it means I've got to submit to him. It means that for some reason I have to give up things that, I, that I'm, too, I'm too happy with as, you know, as well and I'm, I'm just hooked on them and I can't give up this for God and I can't give up that. Hmm. So you want to give up an eternity in heaven for the foolish things of this world. That is foolishness. Let's not only turn our hearts to, to the Lord and be, make sure we are saved, let's live for him. You know the most miserable people in the world are Christians who aren't being Christians. The miserable bunch of people. You know, we, we, we whinge and we cry and we say, oh, how come I haven't got this and how come that hasn't worked out for me? When God has saved you, given you everything you need to live a victorious life, to live a happy life, and you know something? We don't do the, sometimes the most minimal things that God asks us to do and then we whinge why things don't work out for us. Well, you know something? God is a great parent. Eh? If, if my child is, or is disobedient and I give them everything they want all the time, and don't discipline them, what sort of parent would I be? God is a great parent. And God continues to draw us back to himself and he tries to grow us and build us. Think about what's happening in your life. We spoke about being a watchman a while ago. Watch. Look in your own life what's happening. What are the circumstances in your life and what, what is God trying to teach you and me? Because you know something? God could be teaching us Lesson after lesson after lesson and we are so blind. We are so wrapped up in the things of this world that we just miss fantastic opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to grow and, to, and, to, and become stronger because we're so wrapped up and so blinded and narrow focused on the things that are right in front of me that I can't see anything spiritual. Read your Bible. Come to church faithfully. Pray. To the Lord on a regular basis. Listen to what He's doing, and you'll see Him work.